Corey. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 54. Y'all, I'm just going to start out and say, if you see Carrie online, (laughs) just tell her you love her. (laughs) Give her a pack of crackers. Say they're there. (laughs) She's had a hard day, (laughs) y'all. She is like Alexander and the no good, terrible, awful, bad day or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Because, whoa. It's been a rough one. Yes. Don't cry. I'm not. I guess it. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not crying. You're crying. So she had to go to the doctor because, or the ENT, because, you know, she's like sick. Still fucking sick. All the time. This is like been over a month. Yes. I'm still fucking sick and cannot swallow. Legitimately, my mouth is numb right now because I just had a sucker with lidocaine in it because my throat hurts so bad. (laughs) Well, he... I don't know. He did. He said some stuff. Well, I call it the chair of death at the ENT because they blow that shit up your nose to quote unquote numb it. It doesn't. And then they stick that camera down your fucking nose that goes into your throat. And he's Ugh. like, breathe. And I'm like, how the fuck am I going to breathe with this shit in my nose? Right. And then they look all around. They pull it out and then stick the same motherfucking camera in your mouth. Uh, <laughs> like, what? Could you please wipe off the snot? Oh, see, no, I, like, I would throw up. <laughs> He'd be like, can you swallow? And I'd be like, uh, can you wipe the fuck off? Like, because I don't want my own bodily fluids in my mouth either. Mm-mm. I was like, okay, we're this, we're this is what we're doing. All right. Yeah, still fucking sick. Still have, uh, we don't know. We're going to try <laughs> another fucking month of antibiotics. Yeah. And steroids and see where it goes. So here, here's to a month of no fucking sleep. <laughs> well, so then she got a headache. On the way back from the doctor, which she's had a headache for, for like, like a, a fucking month. month because right where my head hurts is where I have a sinus blocked. Yeah. So anyway, so she gets back to work and she's finally like, she's got to throw in the towel because girl is in pain. And I mean, now that we know that she's already tasted her own snot today, so that's <laughs> well, then here's the kicker. And like, she's given us a play by play because that's what we do. And then she's, she said, well, I just fell over a rock and no, I just fell in the parking lot over a rock and I sprained my ankle and then like that went through and then she said, and I tore my pants and I have bruises and scrapes. And so oh, she I scraped the, the shit out of my knee. And let's be honest, I peed a little too. <laughs> little whoop whoop. <laughs> if y'all have not and, seen that video, that is so funny. Josh Prey and he does, he discovered panty liners and what they're for. That <laughs> is so funny. Yeah, my panty liner did not hold that little bit of whoop <laughs> That whoop went, woohoo. <laughs> yeah, ripped my pants, bloodied up my knee, scratched the shit out of my elbow. My drink went flying and broke. My keys, I, thank God they didn't go under my truck because they went skidding across the parking lot. Spilled drink on some of the papers I had. Like, it was just... <laughs> I got in my car and I just fucking cried. Well, I, <laughs> I was well, like, I'm so over this. Well, and then I was like, because normally she has to park like up a hill, like in a gravel pit. And I was like walking up that god dang hill. And she said, no, uh-uh, I was parked close. She's literally parked in a parking lot, y'all. <laughs> I stepped on like paved probably- parking lot. I said, how big of a rock did you step on? She said, I don't know. I never I saw like, it. Who are you, princess in the fucking pee? Because, <laughs> like, it's it's got to be a pebble. It, it legit, I think. <laughs> I don't even know. 
Gravity was a bitch today. <laughs> I was like, it is destined for you to like have a terrible day. Yeah. I so mean, I, yeah. I came home and took a nap. <sighs> Woke up for y'all. <laughs> And food. Oh, yeah. Well, girl got to eat. I mean, <laughs> how else would you be so talented just to trip on a pebble if you aren't top heavy? <laughs> Tiffany had a good idea. We're going to blame it on the fluid in my ears throwing off my equilibrium. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I have tripped over flat surfaces many times in my life. <laughs> and sprained my ankle. So, who knows? When she, like, stumbles and stuff, she'll say, woo, junk again. And it cracks me up. because she doesn't. why it's so funny to you. Because it's all the time, randomly. You know who made my day amazing, though? Who? Me! No. We have four new Patreoners. Uh-oh. That joined the Creepin' Up. You kind of sound like Beyonce. Uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. We got anyway. Creepin' Naughty members. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Donna's on a steroid too, so she's lit AF. Yeah. Mine, however, was not at the pharmacy yet. They had no record of it, so no. here we are. <laughs> because why would it be there? Okay, anyway, amazing Patreoners for making our day better. Thank you so much, Jackie B from Indiana. Denise L from Texas. Kim J from Tasmania. Devil. <laughs> <laughs> my wheels were spinning in my brain. That took me a solid five. People oh, probably God. thought the podcast just broke. That took me so long to process. You know what? You just reminded me of the rims keep spinning. They yes. don't stop. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Old school. Y'all are probably too young for that. But it was cool when we were in college. Okay. Summer are from Texas. Lots of Texas today. Texas. Texas. Spoiler Texas. alert. I'm doing a murder in Texas. A murder in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, tangent time. So, my nickname for Carrie in college was Tasmanian Devil. Mm -hmm. Because back in the day, I was a neat, organized person. She also didn't work. And I did. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, call me out on that shit. But we lived in the dorms and smaller than this room, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, shoebox, shoebox. If there's a Barbie dream house, we were the shoebox beside it. But I would have it all nice and clean, and Carrie would come in and I from work. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. Her shoes would be off, kicked in different directions. <laughs> it's not that bad. Yes, they yes, were. I still do that. <laughs> yes, she kicks them off. She just bloop, bloop, bloop. And then she'll trip over the fuckers. Uh, exhibit A, ankle <laughs> on the right. Yes. Currently. <laughs> oh, my God. And then she'll be like, those fucking shoes. And I'm like, uh, they're yours that you fucking just kicked off. <laughs> and then when I'm going somewhere, namely to the bathroom or to eat, I step over them. <laughs> Oh, anyway, but she would do that, like throw off her belt, throw off her pants, like, but not like take them off, drape them over the the chair, the desk chair or anything. No, no, no. They were literally everywhere. Then like I would have made her bed up because I am a nice fucking human being. <laughs> that girl, like I swear to God, she was just like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. <laughs> Everything's open. And then she's like sitting on the bed. I'm like, but why is it? 
I'm done. <laughs> like, she's sitting on it. How did you do that? <laughs> you know what? It's been bringing me joy, too, this past weekish. I guess. My friend Caitlin, who also listens to our podcast. Shout out. She has been listening to the Bitch Bible. And she was like, do you watch Bravo? And I was like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, okay, you need to listen to Bitch Bible. If y'all are Bravo-holics and you like all the Real Housewives, Vanderpump Rules, all the jazz, you need to listen to her. She's like Bethany Frankel in her like quick wittiness and that I'm pretty sure she doesn't take a breath the whole episode. Oh my gosh. She tells all of her shit and it's fucking funny. She she's like like the basically the like caption of the show is that she says what everybody thinks but would never actually say. Yeah. Know? She's totally inappropriate. She is hilarious, though. And so if you like all the Bravo stuff and you just want, like, an easy listening, like, I I laugh out loud a couple of times. Yeah. Like, the other day she was saying how people, like, asking her, like, when she's going to have a kid because she's, you know, been not, I don't know how long she's been married. And she was, like, on her little rant. And she was like, I mean, get off my womb, okay? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. She's funny. So, if you want comedy, you like Bravo. Because if you don't watch that stuff, then you're not going to know what she's yeah. talking about. But it's good. So, anyway, that's my plug. All right. So, now that we've talked your ear off. Oh, my God. So much today. I go first. And I think this is a good one. Uh-oh. All right. I'm going to talk to you about a lady named Cindy Sauer. Just me? Mm-hmm. She was born in 1974 in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. We know shit goes crazy up in Florida. But that is a good place to fucking vacate. We vacated there a lot when I was a kid. But I'm the one who got everything. You did, because they <laughs> took us on vacation. We didn't have any money for the rest uh-huh. of the year. <laughs> Grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> All right. So she probably saw you when y'all were vacationing there. Mm-hmm. And I was I- like, hey, Cindy. <laughs> but actually, not really. I just totally made that up because... uh Soon after, they moved to Georgia, where her parents were originally from. And from a very young age, Cindy had some paranormal experiences. Some sinister sightings, if you will. That's cute. Uh, The first time was when she was four or five. She can't really remember. But at the time, she shared a bed with her sister. Her sister woke her up and was like, do you... I'm sorry. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? (laughs) Yeah. And it's a grandma, our great grandma, sitting in the chair. Damn. Yes. So, like, she was freaking the fuck out, you know, because she... She did? mm -hmm, She points to the foot of the bed where the chair is from her grandmother, her great grandmother. And she had passed away a few months earlier. Mm. Well, so there she is sitting in her chair. She had the dress on that she was buried in. And she had almost a greenish glow to her, like an aura. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're terrified. They didn't really understand what it was. They just knew that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so they did what anyone in their right mind does. Pull the covers up over their heads and force themselves to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Or run to your parents' room. <laughs> that was what I always did. Because I, I wasn't, I wasn't like, brave enough to stay in my bed with a cover over my head. Yeah. You know? I had to just, 
you would like talk yourself out of it or, you know, talk yourself into it really. And then just bolt as fast as you could. Well, I slept with my mom until God knows when high school, not really, but damn near it. Damn near it. (laughs) Um, So I was always safe by her. Next day they tell their grandmother and their mom and they actually believe them. So they're validated. Mm -hmm. And their mom was like, look, I actually had a dream about great, great grandma. And she thought it was because the mom was pregnant. And so she was like, she probably came to say her goodbyes and Mm -hmm. her hellos Mm -hmm. to the baby. And so it was an open household of understanding and not like, you're crazy, you're making this up, you're blah, blah, blah. There were several other incidents in and around her house when she grew up. Around eight, her and her sister were being noisy in their room. And so their dad came in and was like, you're being too fucking loud. I'm shutting the door. Well, when he shuts the door, it's pitch black in there because it's lights out. They're Mm -hmm. still just, you know, fucking with each other. Well, so he shuts it pitch black. They're still giggling, doing whatever. Well, then Cindy turns to her right side to go to sleep. Her sister's on her back, and her sister is between Cindy and the door. Cindy is totally me. She's like, oh, let me tell you something. And she can't just talk to her face in the other way. She wants to turn over Mm -mm. to tell her. That is you. And it is. I have to see your face when I'm talking to you. No. You know what? I do not like facing each other in bed. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, I don't like that. Like, Right on each other. No, I don't even want to fake, like. But I have to, like, turn my head to you. Uh -uh. Mm Uh-uh. No, I ain't going to sleep like that. But, like, if I'm talking to you, yeah. Mm -mm. I bet you were real fun at sleepovers. I mean, I'd stay up and chat with you, but I don't want to look at you. First of all, it's (laughs) dark. You can't see me anyway. Yes, you can. Your eyes can adjust. I don't like it. (laughs) That's too much. That's too much closeness. (laughs) Get up out of my face. (laughs) Well, all right. Cindy... Goes to turn, and when she does, it's not her sister. (gasps) She said that her face had that weird glow, that greenish glow, and it was kind of stretched out. And she said it looked like a monster. It was distorted, wrinkled, and the eyes were little slits. So Cindy is screaming, going nuts, and her dad bursts in and is like, what the fuck is going on? And all Cindy knows is he's yelling at her and her sister is saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then finally, like, she, like, snaps out of it and everything's fine. But she was like, that, like, something was wrong with your face. Mm -hmm. Like, that was not you. Went on normal, whatever. What do you do as a parent? Right? Oh. You just be like, come sleep with me. It'll be okay. Yeah. That's the answer to everything. (laughs) A while after that, her sister was dating this guy and he did this drawing of something he had seen. And it was the exact same face that she saw on her sister. And he was like, I don't like, I just have this in my head. Yeah. But why? Like he's dating her sister. Yes. That's so weird. I'm like, uh, yeah, because you're sleeping next to a fucking monster or something. Oh, my God. Yeah, so crazy. Later on, she was asked by people that she's been interviewed by what she thought that was 
Why was it in the house? What what caused her house to be kind of a magnet for paranormal activity? And she said she thinks it's the energy in the house because there were problems growing up. She didn't go into a lot. But she said also she found out that the property has some Native American ties to it. Mm-hmm. And it actually had an unmarked grave in there, like a few graves. And it was connected to a slave cemetery. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. And she said they didn't know it at the time, but they had sunken in places in a part of their yard. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of long rectangle-ish, you know. But they didn't really think of it, Mm -hmm. whatever. Well, then when they were digging something, they found a long piece of granite, but it was kind of like a crude granite. It's not what you would think of a headstone now. It was Mm -hmm. kind of like a remnant, whatever, and it had M-A-M-A on it, but kind of etched in it. like It had what on it? M-A-M-A, Mama. Oh, I thought you said M-A-M-8, and I was like... (laughs) Mom ate some James Bond shit. What? (laughs) But so then they were like, what? All right. That's odd. However, shit gets buried and Mm -hmm. whatever. But then now that she's older, she's researched it and tied that back. Also, she said there were some occult practices going on at some points by other people in that house. Mm. And she said when she was a teenager, she actually took part in some practices. I'm thinking like Ouija board stuff because it was when her grandfather, who lived with them, passed away suddenly. Okay. And she doesn't go into a lot of detail about it, but that's how I'm figuring. Like she wanted to talk to him, say goodbyes, whatever. So things snowballed, activity manifested, and just caused the home to have really bad energy. And she left a few years and really just wanted to leave that energy behind her. And she said that the home suffered a lot of people dying in it and near it. And it caught on fire. Oh, shit. So it's just like something on that property really was negative. Mm-hmm. But she can never really shake the negative and depressing feeling. And she had a good life. It was still just something there. Well, that carried over to her marriage. And it just had a lot of alcoholism and abuse and wasn't always bad, but overall Mm -hmm. bad. And it ended with her husband dying by suicide in 2009. Oh, God. And he seemed to not be himself and became very dangerous. And that prompted her to leave a few months before this happened. Mm -hmm. She said that it was the hardest thing for her to do. But also, she knew she had to do that. Yeah. Well, also, she said she knows that his intent was to take her with him. Oh, God. He begged her to come that night and was just panicking and everything, but something in her was screaming, do not go. The next day, he was found dead with a gunshot wound to the head. A few months later, she was renovating in the bedroom, 
She found additional spent shell casings and some unfired rounds in the vent mm-hmm. directly underneath where he died. And she said, knowing those were meant for her. Shit. Like, she. But wait, why were they in the vent? Like, how did they get there? I don't know. Like, then they were spent? Some were and some weren't. So what do you fire them at? I don't know. I guess we'll kind of get to that a little bit later. Okay. Well, she was overwhelmed with guilt for leaving Grief for losing him, for her, because they had three kids together. Mm. So, you know, it was just hard all the way around. She said she felt very lonely because they lost a lot of family because they blamed her. What? For leaving and not being there. I know. Oh, God. And so she just said, which we, I feel like anyone who loses someone close, they know Death brings out the worst. Yes, it really does. It really does. Especially if there's money involved. Oh, gosh. Yes. Months later, she, her life was getting better. You know, Mm -hmm. she could go out. She could actually smile. And things were She's healing. Yes. Well, then some stuff started happening. Unexplained events, like objects being moved, but just in... Left this cup there, came back, and it's yeah a few inches over or yeah. whatever. Easy things to rule out, dismiss, whatever. But then she started to see things kind of dart around in her peripheral visions. Black masses and cabinets would be opened. M- more things than just, oh, the wind might have knocked it over or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, these cabinets latched yeah, and it's open. The spirits were getting stronger. Mm Mm-hmm. So, of course, she's had a history with paranormal stuff. She's like, all right, check. It's paranormal. I'm not crazy. And it's probably my deceased husband Mm -hmm. trying to say goodbye or, you know, just to do that. So, she is like, it's fine. You can move on. Like, we're good. Well, then her oldest daughter, Chastity, was sitting in the kitchen And outside, she saw this, like, horribly, not disfigured, but did not look normal guy. And at first, she was unsure. And then she saw that it was her dad, but it was, like, him covered in blood and all of that. And so, she freaks out. And so, her mom is, like, I'm sure it was some random person. Mm -hmm. Let me go find... Well, she goes outside, looks around to see what she can find, and she gets led to the shed in the back where he had all his work stuff because he was a mechanic. So she goes into the shed because the door is open, and on the workbench is a lug nut just sitting there, and it's the one her husband always used. And so she's like, all right, I think he just wanted me to see it for closure. Yeah. That's okay. So, she again says, you can move on. Like, we are here. Thank you for that. You know, just go towards the light, Carolyn. So, all of a sudden, the lug nut vibrates on the table and then shoots to her and then falls right before it gets to her. So, she's like, uh, this bitch, he ain't trying to say goodbye to me. Yeah. 
Or he is, as in goodbye and hello. Yes. So she goes inside and she's like, oh, it wasn't anyone. You know, trauma happens in many different ways, you know, and kind of come lay with me in my bed, (laughs) like you said. Well, a few months later, Cindy, again, her life is going better. She meets a new guy and his name is Jason. And they're hanging out at this point, but serious, Mm -hmm. you know, but not like. We're living together, mm-hmm. but he's staying over some. He was, by all accounts, a really good guy. He used to be a preacher and just super positive. So they're watching TV one night, and someone knocks on the door, and and Cindy thought she heard almost like a growl. Mm-mm. So Jason goes to check the door. No one's there. He's like... Who knows? The wind, blah, blah, blah. Kids, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. House settling. You know the deal. Well, so she's like, all right, I'm going to say something to you. And like, here it is. She said, look, I think it's actually paranormal activity. And it's my deceased husband who's trying to make contact with me. And he actually believed her and said that he was into the paranormal He believed in it. And so they bonded over that. And again, he's this positive guy. She hasn't had a positive male figure in her life in a while. And he also likes this weird shit, you know? And he said that he had some paranormal stuff happen when he was younger. And she's like, oh, my God, me too. Tells him about the sister and all of that. So she's like, all right, Jason, it's about to be Halloween. Let's do some ghost hunting. And he's like, awesome, let's do it. So later that night, her daughter Chastity has a vivid nightmare where she's in their house, but she sees her dad sitting on the bed. And then she sees this black mass beside him. And she can tell The energy in the room is very negative, and it's almost like he is not in control of himself. Then she sees the gun on the bed. And then she said it seemed like he was struggling to not wanting to pick it up, but his hand was going and shaking Mm -hmm. towards it. And he picks it up, and it's shaking, and then he shoots himself. Mm. And so she woke up crying and screaming. Cindy is like, all right, this is not okay. I'm going to start house hunting. Like, this is not okay. Yeah. One day she's out, again, house hunting, going, okay, for sale by owner, blah, 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 blah. And she makes a wrong turn. And she finds this abandoned house. And she is drawn to it. Very classic, creepy, haunted house looking. So she sent Jason a picture, and it was not a nudie picture. It was a, look at this, boo. We about to do this. And he's like, I'm game. Let's do it this weekend. Done. But that excitement would soon turn to fear. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that weekend, they go to the house during the day, kind of get the lay of the land so they would know what they're up against at night when it's pitch black. When they go inside, they feel somewhat uneasy about the house, but not 
dark. But then they see a black mass in the basement. They go down the stairs. You know, they are fight or flight. They're fighting. They're Mm -hmm. going down. Mm -hmm. And they can't find it. So they're like, all right, this is going to be good. Whatever. Let's go. And we'll come back. Night falls. They return. They have their digital camcorder and a tape recorder. And though on the way there, she started feeling a little apprehensive, but she's like, look, I'm just getting the jitters because now it's real. Yeah. They get out of the car and she's like, no, something's off. Like, I don't know what it is, but something's off. They walk around outside to the back of the house and all of a sudden she thinks she hears a car door. So she's like, oh shit, someone else is here. What if we're yeah. trespassing? What, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs? Mm-hmm. So they go back, no car. But then some branches around them started kind of twisting. and mm-hmm, And then bushes started shaking. And there is this gust of wind that comes through, like Dorothy Gale style, in a fucking tornado. Mm-mm. And it is a freezing breeze. She's shaking. Like, it is chilling to the bone. Then all of a sudden, they see a dark figure darting around. So it's left to right behind them. It just was everywhere. She said it felt like it was going to pounce. So they ran to get back into the car. But then she hears something. She turns and the black mass is running straight to her and hits her like a train. Oh, God. She said what the black mass looked like was vapor. Like on a hot day when you can see the vapor above the... Like the mist, like or yeah. whatever, like the above the pavement. Mm-hmm. That's what it looked like, but... Big. In air and huge. She said not like six feet huge, like 30 feet huge. It was Shit. just crazy. So Jason helps her into the car... They take off down to the driveway to they get to the end and she is like, stop, hold on. I feel sick. I'm disoriented. Like, let me, before you drive this car, let me just, we're away from the house. We're at the end of the road, whatever. She's still just kind of vertigo hits. So she looks at Jason and says, please pray with me. Because, again, he used to be Mm -hmm. a preacher and all that. Then when he did, her body kind of twisted up. And so she was in a U-shape where her stomach was looked like an invisible hand punched it up. And so, like, her butt was hitting the roof almost. You know? She couldn't think. Everything was just, again, disoriented. And... Almost like a muscle spasm. You could say like a really severe muscle spasm. Or you could say they're praying is banishing the demon. Exactly. One could say that. Well, soon enough it's over. And she said the only thing that she could say was, well, that was weird. (laughs) (laughs) So Jason kept driving and like, look, let's just get out of the property. Like maybe being at the end isn't enough. Like, let's get out of here. They make it to a parking lot far enough away. He pulls over like, all right, let's kind of decompress before mm-hmm. we get back to the house. Like, and bring that energy. Yeah. yeah. Well, he looks over and Cindy's kind of out of it. 
And he's like, yo, girl, what did it do? Not really. He's like, oh, my God, Cindy, Cindy, what is wrong with you? I don't know why he's like that. Cindy, what's wrong with you? He's very uh, high pitch. Yeah, he was. Did he have the um, feminine hips like King Tut Tut? <laughs> yes, in the butt bud. <laughs> Damn, that's some fucking savage. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> what makes a fucking feminine hip? I mean, he had, he was shapely. Fuck. Like, that's so stupid. Sorry. <laughs> I guess I didn't feel good enough the last episode to rant about that. Yeah. Well, all right. So back to this. He's like, Cindy, what's wrong with you? And Oh, he got a deeper voice that he, time? Cindy, what's wrong? No, that sounds like a demon. <laughs> so again, he's, yo, girl, what it do? <laughs> so Cindy looks up and she hisses at him. Straight hisses at him. Nope. I'd say get the fuck up out of my car. <laughs> then she kind of lunges forward at him. So he's, he braces her back and starts yelling, who are you? Tell me your name. Who are you? Who are you? And she said that she was not in control. And she heard him saying this. And she's like, why is he saying this to me? Mm-hmm. Like, you know who I am. What's going on? Because she wasn't really present? Yeah. Question mark? <laughs> yeah. She wasn't really present? Was she, you know? Question mark? <laughs> um, she just keeps hissing. No. Like, hissing. You're not, you're not a snake. You're not a cat. <laughs> Stop that. Well, then, in a whispered voice, she says, Help me. <gasps> so, Cindy was not in control, but she mustered up enough to say that well so he with that he's like cindy say jesus say his name pray say jesus just say that one name and she finally forces out jesus and that was the first attack the first mm-hmm so she said it was probably daybreak when they got back to their house. And they lived about 15 minutes away. Shit. That's how long all of this took. Everything was normal. She said she was drained, of course, emotionally, mm-hmm. physically. Took a few days to recover. And they thought, okay, something to do with that house. It's all gone now. Like, things are getting back to normal. Everything was fine. Let's not go back to that house. Mm-hmm. Put it behind us, you know, whatever. Yeah. However, Cindy's personality began to change. Mm. She became very irritable, had bouts of rage with her daughter, Chastity, where Chastity said her mom was her best friend. Mm -hmm. Her mom was a singer in a band and like the cool mom. Yeah. And now she was short-fused, didn't pay attention. You know, if she's playing her guitar, Chastity used to come in and, like, she would sing to her and all of this. And she didn't want her to hear her music. Just weird. completely different. And so Chastity, it was, it made everything worse because now Chastity is feeling lonely and isolated which is also more negative energy yes. in the house. Yes. For that poltergeisty demon mm-hmm. they have. Cindy said that a shadow person 
would be behind her. Like, it always felt like it was right behind her, looming over her. And it would talk to her through her senses. She didn't hear it audibly, but she could hear it in her mind. Mm -hmm. Like, almost like she was thinking. Yeah. It was not her Yeah. She said sometimes it would appear as a child. Sometimes it would just be blue lights. And the scariest point is that it would start to bargain for her soul. Mm -mm. She would wake up with several scratches and bruises from just sleeping. So she knew something was wrong. She knows enough about the paranormal that this is not normal. Right. But she's kind of powerless. And at this point, it's a battle of who is present. Is it? The entity, or is it Cindy? Oh, God. So, she asked Jason to stay the night with her. And they're sitting on the tailgate outside, looking up at the stars, trying to be romantic. He's trying to, you know, show her compassion, help her help her not feel alone, and mm-hmm. not let her push him away. Well, all of a sudden, she sees the dark figure that vapor again, and it rushes to her and knocks her back on the tailgate. So now they're like, fuck, this is attached to you. Mm-hmm. This isn't that house. Like, it shouldn't still be here. Yeah. And now it's starting to click, and they talk about it like, you know, this is making me really depressed, and it's negative, and all of this, and what Chastity saw of Maybe. her father. Yes. Exactly. And so that is why with the spent casings and stuff, how she saw his hand trembling and not wanting to fire, mm-hmm. they're thinking that, that might have been it. Like he was like just kind of firing. Yeah, but where did the bullets go? There would have been bullets in the walls and stuff that when they no, did. in the in that thing, the vent where it was. That's weird. I don't know that Yeah, part. I don't know. I don't buy it. (laughs) That, I have no idea. But this holds true because even though that they were separated and he was dealing with a lot of his own personal demons, Mm -hmm. him dying by suicide, it was just out of the blue. And you can say that this was their way of reasoning and coping with that loss, too. Right. Who knows? Well, after they talk about that, about how it might have changed her husband or her now late husband, Jason turns to her and is like, look, boo, you might be possessed. And she's like, say what? Skirt. What? He drew on his religious background. He grew up Pentecostal. Then he went to seminary and he was a Protestant preacher. He said, look, I've seen it in the past. I've never really done anything with it, but I have seen cases like this. We need an expert. I'm not an expert, but we'll get you help. Like, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. This is this is it. Well, when he mentioned that, like, we're going to get you help, the figure started to force pain in Cindy's head, and she could hear the voice placing doubt on Jason, how it's all about him. He only cares for himself Mm. and how he was like, I've seen this before. 
and stuff, it said that his arrogance would be his downfall and just like all Jesus. of this stuff. No, it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> but they move forward. They contact Roswell Paranormal Investigations. The duo that came is David and Michelle. Michelle is a psychic slash sensitive. She said when she got to the house and started to walk through it, she could feel the dark presence. And when they made their way to the master bedroom, she felt the deceased husband's presence very strongly, almost like he was guarding that room. Mm -hmm. They got some spikes on the EMF meters, you know, like, hey, you know, got a ghost. You call the Ghostbusters. We here bust the shit up. They do an EVP session and they start to hear growling. And Cindy said that she could feel the presence of that entity again. So the lead investigator says, you know, this is not your house. This is Cindy's house. And when he said that, her eyes roll back in her head. Cindy's did? Yes. Her back arches because they're on the couch. Mm -hmm. And so she's now contorting from this. And she's overpowered by this entity again. She starts hissing. And then they look at her and her eyes are pure black. Oh, my God. Cindy said that she was trying to talk and tell them that I'm here. Like, yeah, I'm here. I'm okay. But it wouldn't let her. And all she was doing was the hissing again. And she basically got on a pounce stance on the couch. Like oh, she was kind of perched. Yeah. Who is she? Tom fucking Cruise? <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Glib. <laughs> so they all start to pray. And he commands a spirit to leave Cindy. She falls back on the couch, and they're like, you in danger, girl. So, Jason stays with Cindy, and they're like, look, we're going we're gonna to take this stuff that we got, because we got a lot. We're going to take it, see who can come and help us exercise your demons. Mm-hmm. Jason's like, I got you. We're here. We good. Well... Cindy is laying, again, facing the right, not facing him. And all of a sudden, she feels that presence again on her. And she just keeps hearing it taunt her and taunt her and starts just saying rude things. And so Cindy kind of yells through gritted teeth, stop praying. And Jason's like, I'm not praying. And in a very low voice, she's like, yes, you are. And he was. And then she starts speaking. Like in his head? Mm-hmm. He was laying there just, please be with her. Please, you know, blah, yeah. blah, 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 silently. And she's not facing him. Girl, I would have been freaked out. Mm-hmm. I would have fear farted, fear shat myself, killed over, and been like, Bye. This is why I'm single. I'd be like, you own your motherfucking home. <laughs> Bye. Right? Well, then it gets to a whole nother creepy level. She starts speaking in a different language, and Jason recognizes it as Aramaic. And he said, what it translates to is, your God bows to me. Damn. And so he's scared shitless because this bitch is saying some crazy ass shit. Some like serious shit. Serious. Like. Oh, Lord, bless your heart. Mm-hmm. Bless your heart. I got to go. And your soul. But <laughs> bye. Yeah. 
So he's scared shitless and is like, why are you saying that? And she said, I'm not. It's channeling itself through me. Duh, bitch. Damn. So they're like, all right, love you, love you, bye. And (laughs) (laughs) the next morning, Cindy feels even more hopeless. And she said she was looking in the mirror and she's just trying to recognize herself. Mm Mm-hmm. But she can't because she starts kind of convulsing and she could see what it looked like flashes of a demon instead of her in the mirror. So she is freaking out. She wakes Jason up because she's freaking the fuck out. And he starts praying over her again. And she kind of crumples to the floor and she's okay again. Well, a few hours later... She's freaking out because the exorcism is supposed to be today. And, of course, now it's closer. Mm -hmm. And so the demon's like. Ramp it up. Yeah. Getting ready. Making Mm -hmm. her real tired. Exactly. So he can take over. He's like pre-gaming with some alcohol. Mm -hmm. He's getting ready. Shit's about to get lit. So Jason hears them outside. They pull up. He's like, all right, stay right here. I'm going to go talk to them for a second. I'll be right back. Because he kind of wanted to let them know, like, she's having a little episode this morning Mm -hmm. where she saw, like, flashes of a demon. So, you know, whatever. Let's not hold a mirror up to her, okay? Yeah. Well, while she's sitting there on the couch, she just has this overwhelming need to, like, feel her leg, touch her leg. And she's looking at it, and she's like, I want to see what's inside of my leg. I want, Fuck. I need to cut this open, see what it is. She said she just felt like she wanted to pull her innards out, like dismantling a toy. So she goes to the kitchen. She's looking for knives everywhere. Jason kind of hears something and he's like, wait a tick. Hold on. He goes inside, sees her and she's like, where are they? Where are they? No knives anywhere. And he said that morning after she had that little episode, he something told him, like, get the knives out. He said he never felt in danger yeah. of her before, but just something was like, mm-mm. and he said, I mean, he said that's God saying, yeah, boy, you in danger, sharp utensils out of here, mm-hmm. sporks only. So, luckily, he went to Taco Bell before. I was going to say, death by sport, unless he was us tonight, because they didn't fucking give me a sport. They sure didn't. Death by spork. (laughs) You've said that before. That would be horrible. Oh, fuck. So, she's freaking out. And also, full body chills if it full circle. You know what I mean? Like, he probably thought, I'm overreacting, Mm -hmm. but I'll put these away. And now he's like, ding, ding, ding. What's up, God? Yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks, boo. You got me, fam. So the team comes in because, you know, he's been gone a minute. And it's Reverend Darren Simpson, Michelle, the mm-hmm. psychic from earlier, and Claudia Lee, who was just part of their team. Michelle said she immediately felt negative energy and it had grown stronger. And it was telling her, if you come inside, You will regret it. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Well, they get in there. Jason's like, all right, come meet the team. Like, leave the sporks alone. Mm -hmm. She sits on the couch, and they're all kind of 
pulling up the chairs, you know, going to do their little intervention moment with her real quick. And she, again, gets in that, like, wah, like, crouching tiger, hidden dragon stance. And they're like, oh, fuck. Then she starts basically doing little somersaults, like, frontward rolls Mm -hmm. and then backwards. And then she gets onto the couch's arm and she's in that crouching position. A demon could not make me do any of this. If if you see me be able to do one, a cartwheel at all, if you see me do anything like that. Look, that, when she gets done with this, she's going to be so motherfucking sore. Right. Like, what the hell did that demon have me do it? <laughs> you know that meme where it's like, the demon takes over your body, and then your <laughs> demon's like, it's fine, I won't be here. Why does it hurt so yes. bad in here? <laughs> yes. That is us. Well, and your demon would be like, there wasn't even a fucking rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. My demon's like, I really want skin on my knee, okay? Right? <laughs> so, she's in that pouncing, crouching, like, and I just picture her, you know, like, when Mortal Kombat and stuff, when they're about to fight, like, mm-hmm. they're just going back and forth. Mm-hmm. No, but yeah. I mean, I never played, but I know what you're You've talking about. You've never played Mortal Kombat. I don't think. Oh, my God. No, because you were vacationing. <laughs> you were at the casino kid playroom mm-hmm. playing it. Okay, let's just get this straight. Mortal Kombat was in my house. Super Nintendo. What up? Tekken and Tekken 2 and Tekken 3 and Street Fighter. That was at the arcade. Okay. Mm-hmm. And let me just tell you, boys did not understand. I got nimble fucking fingers. <laughs> I mean, I got to get down to the cookie jar i gotta get the last pickle <laughs> i gotta get all of this you're like look i may not be able to crouch down like this in real life but motherfucker on mortal Kombat, i will whip your ass i will whip it so her eyes go pure black again so jason tries to pin her down and cindy is like get off of me or i will kill you and he said bitch try i hear the knives <laughs> oh god true with you and what spork that was funny well cindy later said in that moment she wanted to kill him yeah at the same time she is like she doesn't she wants to save him and kiss him and love him so he is holding her down and she's still convulsing and she's doing like a robot yes she is definitely Pop lock and dropping it. So Jason is holding her wrist now. And she's like, you're hurting me. Stop it. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And he's like, I love you. I'm here for you. You know, blah, 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 blah. All that mushy good. She loves stuff that you just love. And he said it was so hard for him to keep holding on to her wrist. And he wasn't forcefully holding on. He was just kind of grounding her. Yeah. But to hear her say, I hate you, I want to kill you, blah, 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 really hurt him. Well. But it's the demon. Yeah. Father Darren is like, look, I need her in the chair because, you know, all exorcisms, you have to be in a chair. See, in my head, they need her up in her bed. Oh, that's funny. Like, all exorcisms are in bed. That is so funny. Well, I mean, yes. But, like, in all the Lifetime movies and shit like that, they're always in a fucking chair. So they get her in the chair, and she's, like, again, 
doing her dancing, but in the chair. Father Darren starts to perform a solemn exorcism, which they say is prayer, but the whole thing is to get the demon to tell you his name so you can cast him out that way directly. So it's kind of like, let's boil the demon out mm-hmm. like to the surface and then expel him. It's like a zit that you have to work and work and work. That's the best. Dr. Pimple Popper, we see you. Yes. And you're gross. I mean, it's not. Because I actually watched one with Carrie because I was like, I saw it and I want to watch it. Now, I did watch it through like closed hands half the time. And Carrie had to be like, it's okay. You can see it. Because that's too much. But she does God's work. Mm-hmm. There's people like her on the earth for a reason. Yes. So, Cindy was doing all of the hissing and shit that she normally does. Well... Father Darren is like, all right, I'm going to put some holy water on you. Be careful. He, like, the holy water on her. And it's in, you know what it sounded like? When those little bitty hair. Oh, yeah, those little spritz mm-hmm. things that suck. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. When he, well, she laughs. And she's like, that didn't do anything to me. And he's like, yeah, because it wasn't holy water, but this is, bam! <gasps> and it was like, ah! No! Yes! And so it's the Wicked Witch of the West? Yes! Oh, my God! Like, Father Darren, damn, tricked the demon! Damn! He's like, haha, you ain't got nothing on me. Uh, yes, I do. Bitch, here you go! Damn, way to go, Father Man. <laughs> Forgot his name already. <laughs> Father Man. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So, after a while of doing this, because, you know, now holy water, and she's like, melting. It seems to work. And he's like, all right, got another test for you. So, he whips out his handy-dandy sacrament holy holy communion. And, like, here's a body of Christ wafer. Gets it, and she starts choking. And they're like, okay, demon's still in there. So, they repeat the whole rite. And Claudia, the lady with them, she said she started freaking out and praying for Cindy, but also protection for herself because she's like, look, this demon's boiling up to the top. Yeah, and I don't want to jump out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so she said she felt something super cold beside her. And Michelle was filming this and she saw the black vapor right beside Claudia. And she said, Claudia, it is right beside you. Something is right beside you. And Claudia was like, right here, you know, and she's like, yeah, she said, I know I felt it, you know, blah, 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 blah. So at this point where the black vapors now out of Cindy's body, she starts becoming more animalistic. Her eyes are now a like milky, cloudy color. Jason said, and man after my own heart, he said, if you're looking at like a glazed donut. They, they're glazed over. Mm-hmm. You can still see your eyes, but yeah, it's glazed over. I was like, damn, I really want a donut, but yeah, but okay, I get what you're doing. Jason keeps holding her wrist now, and like, I love you, I love you, I love you. While they're praying, Claudia's now like praying again for her protection and Cindy's more, but they're all praying out loud, and. They finally get the name of the demon, and they're able to forcibly direct it to leave. 
she said that she finally felt a release. The air was lighter. What's the, the demon's name? She does not tell the demon's name because she doesn't want anyone to, like, summon mm-hmm. him, look him up, do any of this. Because she's like, I don't want to be liable for what happens if you do that. Yeah. Okay. So, people can say, you're lying. Or, like, no, I get that. Because, yeah. I mean, that's it. Like, this really bad thing happened to me, and it took over my body, and I wanted to kill my husband. And his name was George. You know? like, yeah. And then me and you, who have a podcast, go, ooh, George Demon. Yes. George, George, George of the Jungle. And then... Watch out for that tree. Yeah. And then you fall on a rock and break your ankle. Mm-hmm. Sprain it. <laughs> so, there we are. So, that's why it doesn't say... But she said the air was lighter, lights were brighter. She could really feel the presence of God right then. And for the first time in a long time, she didn't feel like anything was behind her. She was free. Mm -hmm. Father Darren said he thinks a demon came into her life after her husband's passing. And he just kind of talked to her afterwards. He got everyone out of the house besides her and really just told her, look, Now that you've been possessed, you can be possessed easily now. That has opened up and it's, you can never just completely close off. So you have to live right. Don't let negativity affect you, Mm -hmm. you know, blah, 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 blah. And just really kind of gave her a heart to heart, like, I'm here for you, but I can only do so much. Yeah. Well, at the end, he's like, let's bless the house too. And he even blessed the shed out back, her husband's Mm -hmm. shed. Well, when the final prayer ends, Cindy senses her her dead hubby. And she felt kind of like he was a sense of protection. Mm -hmm. Again, like how Michelle had felt in that room. Yeah. And Michelle said that she felt it too out there. And she said that I think he's going to pass, but he stayed around Trying to protect you from that demon Mm -hmm. that was probably in him, too. Yeah. So today, Cindy lives in Savannah with Jason, and they have a baby boy. So three girls, one boy, but girls were from previous marriage. Mm -hmm. She reaches out to professionals in the paranormal field for herself. She... Talks to others who have been possessed, think they're possessed, and just kind of, she's the person that she needed to be, you know, that she's the person that Jason was for her. Mm -hmm. Because she said she doesn't think she would have got through it had it not been for him. Yeah. Because he knew immediately in that car the first night what to do and not to just let her succumb to it. I was going to say, there's no telling how long it would have taken yeah. For somebody else to notice. Yeah. So she's just, she's there to not disprove you. But Jason also works with her and he is still more of a skeptic. And he said that there, if you are well versed on it now, and now he's definitely seen it firsthand, that there are telltale signs. And so if someone is saying they're possessed and they are. You know, saying a few things like, you know, it's fake. Like, you can tell, no, they've never had this done or mm-hmm. whatever. And he was like, it it changes a person. And 
they shouldn't be, they shouldn't know everything. So if someone says, I was possessed and I did A, B, C, and D, E, F, G, Mm -hmm. they're not in control. And so they should not remember some of that stuff. Like she doesn't remember some shit. And he said, that's hard for him to do because he wants to be like, yeah, well, when you were doing blah, 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 but he can't because she doesn't remember it. It's a negative time. They're Mm -hmm. trying not to have negativity in their life. And he said, that's like one of the hardest parts for him is that happened to him, but it like from her, but she doesn't remember it. Right. And why bring it up then? Right. But he still can't get his piece, I guess, of it. And he was like, now saying all of that, it's a drop in the bucket to her actually being possessed. Yeah. Like way, way worse with her. So her story was featured on an episode of A Haunting on Destination America. And it was called The Exorcism of Cindy Sauer. And she said that they actually had some activity when they were interviewing her. Their lights kept having bulbs blow. And it's those big stage mm-hmm. lights. And those lights don't just burn out all the time because they're yeah. fucking expensive. And, yeah, they are. You know. Well... They had to change them like three times. And then she kept hearing something run over the roof. Again, just kind of darting, you know, back and forth. And she would see it in the peripherals. And other people heard the sounds. Mm -hmm. She said that there was a tech guy and the voice would come back and did not like him. And she said, it does not like whatever you have in your pocket some tattoo you have on you and just you in general. Like, it does not like you. He's like, I don't have anything. And she's like, yes, you do. And he's like, no, I really don't. I don't. I don't. But he was like, all right, got to go by. Because he probably did. Because they work on a show called A Haunting. He probably had protection to not get, Mm -hmm. you know, possessed. Yeah. But... Like, it was just weird that she had no idea, but he came close to her and was like, and she was like, it doesn't like you. Go. Because, again, it makes her head hurt and everything else. Shit. Yeah, so he was like, boy, bye. Gone. And another weird thing, the priest, Father Darren, who did the Mm -hmm. exorcism, he arrived outside for his interview. Because they interviewed him in... Like a warehouse. Yeah. No one knew he was there. She's interviewing. And all of a sudden, she just suffers a major attack again of convulsing and just everything. that happens to her? Yes. And they caught this on tape, but they dumped the footage because they didn't want to exploit that Mm -hmm. because it was scary. They weren't prepared for that. And it was just out of the blue. But then they, people were like, hey, like, Eagle has landed. He's here. Mm -hmm. And it was right at that time, right before where he had pulled up. She had that. Shit. Yeah. I said about her not doing the demon's name. Mm -hmm. And she also said they have some EVPs from that first time and a few other instances but she doesn't share them with a lot of people like on the internet she shares them with the professionals that she talks to and stuff like that but she said that she did 
again, does not want to be liable to put it out there and someone get possessed, get possessed or yeah, even just how her husband did to be controlled and harm yourself or yeah, whatever she said that she, she doesn't need that negativity in her life. Just like the father Darren said, So she just doesn't want to put that out there and have bad karma for it or have to worry if someone has done something because of that. Yeah. She did have to have another exorcism. (gasps) And they still do have episodes, but it wasn't like before. And it's not, it doesn't control her. It comes in really sporadic spurts. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not every time. Someone comes over and says, God, yeah, she doesn't have a fit. But it's definitely, I feel like if, probably if there's some sort of negativity, if they have a fight or whatever, mm-hmm. it can creep back in. And it might not even be that demon anymore. It That's might crazy. be something else, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so she's not rid of it. She was like, I don't think I ever will be, but I live with it and it doesn't hinder me like it did. And they know how to stop it when it does get that bad. Mm -hmm. They know that the prayer works, that she has her partner in crime Mm -hmm. that helps her through this. God, that's scary. Right? And that was the exorcism of Cindy Sauer. Shit. She's lucky. Yes. She's got him. Right? I mean, anybody else would have died. You know what I mean? Yeah. I eat her husband. I know. Isn't that so sad? And just think about her daughter. I'm surprised that she had another kid, though, knowing that she was, like, forever going to be at risk for yeah. another possession. Like, that's a lot for a kid, I feel like. Damn. That was good. You did a good job on that one. Yay! Awesome. All right. So, we're staying in the South. We're heading on to the West. So we're staying in the south. We're going to take old I-10, head west a little bit. We're going to go to Houston, Texas. Woo Okay. So it's 1973. Dead of fucking summer. Hot fucking Mos- muggy. Mm-hmm. Mosquitoes fucking everywhere. And there are two friends, Wayne Henley and Timothy Cordell Curley. Wayne's 17. Timothy is... 19. So we're going to call, but we're going to call them Henley and Curly. Okay. Can we call them Curly and Mo? Sure. So they wanted to have like a fun night partying and Henley's like, y'all know this place. And so they go over to Henley's friend's house to party. They get there, they have some paint, they drink some alcohol. And then around midnight, they go to leave the house. They can buy some sandwiches. (laughs) Of course, you need sandwiches. I mean, you're high. Hello. (laughs) So, the house they were... Sorry. Terrible planning on their part. Always make the finger sandwiches before. Yeah, so that you don't have to leave when you're drunk. We Uh do not condone drinking and driving. No. Or Or smoking and driving or or huffing and driving (laughs) or none of that stuff. The only thing you need to do is huff and puff your way to bed. Mm Mm-hmm. But don't huff paint fumes. No. Mm -mm. Okay. Huff the air. The house they were in, like, that they were partying was in Pasadena. So, when the, after they go buy their sandwiches, they drive back up to the Heights, which is, like, like a suburb in Houston. Curly leaves his vehicle close to Henley's house. And then 
they start going towards their friend's house, Rhonda Williams. She's 15. Well, Rhonda had a, a really tough childhood life. That night, her father, in a drunken state, had beaten her. Oh, God. And so she was like, look, I'm going to leave the house until he sobers up. Yeah. You know, we'll figure it out. Bless it. So the guys were like, look, if you want to get out of your dad's house tonight, come with us. We're going to head back down to Pasadena so that we can get fucked up some more. Mm-hmm. And so they pick her up. She hops in with them. And they go toward, down to Pasadena. So they get to the house at about 3 a.m. on August 8th, 1973. Very important date, people. Very important. Month, day, not the year. I was going to say in 12 years. Yeah. That's my birthday. My mama pushed me out of her badge. Not actually, she didn't. She had to have a, a cesarean with me. Did she? Because she had one with Kenneth because his uh, umbilical cord was wrapped around his I didn't know throat. That. Oh. He had to be extra when he came in. Mm-hmm. When they get to the house, they're drinking beer, smoking pot, still huffing some paint fumes, all the shit. Well, they all pass out. And about two hours later, Henley wakes up. And when he wakes up, he's on his stomach and he's got handcuffs on. Oh, shit. And his his mouth had been taped shut. And his ankles are bound together. Oh, fuck. And he sees that Rhonda and Curly are also both, like, bound together. And they're, like, bound up with nylon ropes, been gagged. And they're laying on the the floor. And Curly's naked. So the guy's house they were at, when he realized that Henley had woken up, Henley was like, like, he took his gag off. And Henley was like, look, look, look. You know, I'll help you. I won't tell anybody. Like, you know, just just let me go, you know, kind of thing. And the guy was like telling Henley how pissed he was that he had brought that girl to his house. He was like, now I'm going to kill y'all because you shouldn't have brought her. Like, yada, yada. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. Like, look, just like let me out. And the guy's like, no, I'm going to kill y'all all, but first I'm going to have my fun. He repeatedly kicked Rhonda in the chest and then dragged Henley into the kitchen, put his twenty two caliber pistol up to his stomach, and told him, like, that he was going to shoot him. Oh, my gosh. So, Henley's like, look, look, I'll help you do whatever you want to do to these people. Like, Savage if, as fuck. If you, you know, yeah, if you just let me go or, like, untie me, I'll help you. Mm-hmm. And the guy was like, okay. So, he untied Henley. And Henley helped him carry Curly and Rhonda into the bedroom and then tied them up on opposite sides on this, like, torture board that the guy had created. Oh, my gosh. Curly was on his stomach and Rhonda was on her back. So the guy handed Henley his hunting knife and was, like, cut away, like, cut off her clothes. And Rhonda's like, pineapple pen. My safe word is pineapple pen. Yeah. So what he wanted him to do was, while Henley was raping Rhonda, he would be raping Curly. Well, about that time, Rhonda and Curly start waking up. Oh, God. They weren't even awake No, they were still, like, passed out for all this. Oh, okay. And so Rhonda, like, lifts her head and she's like, is this real? And he's like, yes. And she's like, are you going to do anything about it? And... 
so Henley asked if he could like drag her into another room and his question was ignored. And so Henley grabbed the guy's pistol and said, you've gone too far, Dean. And the guy like taunts him and is like, you won't do it. And then he shot him, hitting him in the forehead, but it didn't go like it didn't go all the way in. Fucking hard head. And so the guy continued to like go towards him where he fired another two rounds, hitting him in the left shoulder. Then the guy ran out of the room and hit like hit the wall in the hallway. So he fired three additional bullets into the guy's lower back and his shoulder. And he like slid down the wall and he like died where he fell. Damn. So he's like laying there dead, naked body, like facing the wall and so he released Curly and Rhonda from their torture board. And they all three, like, got dressed and were like, okay, now what the fuck do we do? And at first, Henley was like, we just need to leave. Like, you know, we've been here partying. Like, nobody really knows we were here. Like, let's just fucking leave. And Curly's like, no, we need to call the police. And so Henley's like, okay. So they look up the number for the Pasadena police and... At 8.24 on August 8th, 1973, Henley calls the Pasadena police and tells the operator, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. They gave the address. It was 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena. I'm just wondering if this took place in Pasadena. I think it, I think it was in Pasadena. <laughs> so when the police get there, the three of them are just like sitting on the porch, like just kind of like. In a daze, you know, just sitting there waiting, like, what the fuck do we do? Yeah. Like, so, when the first officer got to the scene and just, you know, saw him sitting there, like I just said, they were just hanging out on the porch, like, waiting to be, like, you know, in a shocked daze, like, what the fuck do we do? Yeah. He notices that there's a twenty two caliber pistol in the driveway near him. So, he gets that, and Henley's like, I'm the one that called, like, there's a body in there. So, detectives come, and they're like, you know looking everywhere. They take the three into custody because obviously they were involved in a shooting. And at first Henley's like, okay, this is what happened. You know, tells about they were going just to get high and hang out and all this stuff. And then, you know, they passed out, you know, told the whole story. And then when they questioned Curly and Rhonda, they told the exact same story. And sort of like, okay, well this is, you know, they're all on the same page. Like, clearly not rehearsed like this is legitimately like he was protecting himself and them well the more they probed though they found out that when henley went to kill the kill the guy you know i told you he said you've gone too far dean he also said i can't go any longer i can't have you kill all my friends and that the man said you know kill me wayne and, that, like, you won't do it. And you know how I told you that. Okay. Yeah. So, they're like, okay, well, clearly there's, like, more going on. Like, you know, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. And so, they start asking Henley, like, this is what you said. Like, what do you mean? Tell me more. So, they're trying to, like, put the pieces together. And they're like, okay, we got these three here. We know them. We know their story. Like, okay, who's this man? You know, mm-hmm. tell me all about him. Well, the man that had been killed, his name is Dean Coral. Dean Coral is one of the most prolific serial killers in 
the country and most people don't know him. It's crazy. The only thing I know about Coral is sounds like Carl from The Walking Dead when Rick does his accent. Oh, no. It also sounds like Coral, which is the Pantone color of the year right now. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, Dean Coral, he was born in 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. His dad was, like, super strict. His mom was very protective. His parents got a divorce when he was, like, seven years old. Dean Coral was very shy as a child. Very, like, didn't have a lot of socialization with other kids. He was also a sickly child. Like, he had rheumatic fever that was not diagnosed until 1950. Like, it was... Dang. So, he went, like, four years with it before it was diagnosed. And then... Yeah. And then he had a heart murmur. Like, even, like, with with those diagnoses, like, he wasn't allowed to do PE and stuff as a kid. Damn, that would have been my heaven. I know, right? Besides on those parachute days. I love that damn game. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, his parents got back together for a short period of time and moved to Pasadena, Texas. But then they ended up getting divorced again. Well, his mom ended up remarrying. And she and his stepfather had, like, just started a little small business. And it was a candy company named Pecan Prince. And so they were, like, candy makers. And so, Mm -hmm. like, a candy store made candy. He ended up going into the Army in 64. I don't. We don't care about him. We don't care about all that. But after he was honorably discharged from the army, he came back to the Heights in Houston, and that's where he was the pre- like vice president of the candy business. So one thing that Dean Coral will do because like just for like to drum up business because his mom and stepdad had gotten divorced, and then they had their own candy companies each, and so it was just like he was trying to drum up business. So he would go to some of the elementary schools in the area and like give out free candy. He would do it to, like, kids, but, like, mostly, like, teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And he was nicknamed the Candyman or mm. the Pied Piper. Oh. He was kind of known to have, like, flirted with some of the young, like, male employees of the candy store. But, like, he had a pool table installed in there, like, at the back of the, like, of the factory so that, you know, The kids would come and hang out and eat candy and play pool. And later on, he could play with their balls. Mm -hmm. That's disgusting. (laughs) So we're going to flash back again to 73. And so the police are like, to Henley, they're like, okay, tell me more about Dean Coral. Like, what is this about? What were you talking about? What's going on? He was like, well, he has a little storage unit that holds like boats and that kind of thing. And, well, I've helped him build, I've helped him bury bodies there. What? And so they were like, okay, we'll come show us where it is. Well, he takes them to the storage and it's like, it's this, you know, storage unit of all the, all these different storage units. And he's like, okay, look, it's number 11. And they go, it's of course locked. So they go to the little people who own it and he's like, they're like, hey, can you open this up for us? Yeah. I mean, and this wasn't, like, some, like, nice climate-controlled shit. Like, it was, like, it sounds like, ooh, a boat boat storage. But, no, like, most people didn't have boats in it. It wasn't, like, those huge, like, yachts being stored there and, like, RVs and shit. It was, like, most people had old cars, blah, 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 in there. So they open his storage unit, and inside they see a couple of bikes, an old ratty car that had, like, half its parts missing. And they noticed some, like, 
disturbances in the soil that were covered by like a little carpet. And then they noticed a like an open bag of lime. Mm. And so they're like, hmm. And he's like, you know, tell like, the, you know, this is, this is where it is. Yeah. <laughs> so they start digging and they start finding bodies. Oh, fuck. Initially, they found, I think, seven bodies. Fuck. Yeah. So now they're kind of getting some more. So they go back, like they, you know, take him back to the police station. They start some more interviewing. And he's like, okay, this is what had happened. You know, as they find out more, he's slowly like starting to divulge more and more. It's like, because you know how, again, anytime anybody's confessing like that, they try to minimize their participation. So he's like, well, I just helped him bury him. And then he's like, well, I might have killed three of them. You know, (laughs) I'm, well, I may have helped with blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, he ends up saying that for almost three years, he and another kid by the name of David Brooks had been helping Dean Coral by getting young teenage boys <laughs> to come to his house. And that Dean Coral was paying them $200 basically ahead. Wow. To bring them young boys. At first, he lied and said, like, he thought that the people that he brought in were being sold into, like, a Dallas-based organization, like, for human trafficking. And then he Mm -hmm. was like, I mean, like, I knew that they were being sold. Like, I knew it was for them to be sexually assaulted and killed, but I thought it was, like, in Dallas. But then later, he said he he found out that it was Dean Coral actually the one doing it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So... And I was thinking, shit, two hundred dollars a head is a lot of fucking money. But I mean, like, you just, just, how does he have that much cash yeah. laying around? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I couldn't afford some. I mean, shit, just think they found seven bodies. You know? Yeah. I'm like, shit, that's a lot of fucking money. I don't have that extra kind of cash. But he was an electrician during the day, and then helped with like the candy store mm. at night. So he had a, basically two jobs. Yeah. I mean, gotta support his habit. Ugh. Well, the police start looking, you know, they're looking more in the house, too, because, well, hello. And so the police find that torture board that I told you about, and it's about eight feet by three feet, and it's got handcuffs attached to it, nylon rope, and around there they find his large hunting knife, lots of clear plastic, like rolls of clear plastic. Yeah. Um. A portable radio that is rigged to a pair of, like, dry cells to, like, turn the volume way up, you know, yeah. so you can't hear anything. An electric motor with loose wires attached. <gasps> uh-uh, no. Eight, mm-hmm, eight pairs of handcuffs, multiple dildos, and thin glass tubes, and then just tons and tons of rope. They start looking into, De- like, at Dean Coral's van he had the real the the back windows were all sealed with like opaque blue curtains. Oh shit! Red flag number fucking one. Yes. Um, the police also found like coils of rope. A there was like a swatch of the beige rug that was in there that was covered in stains. Ew! Like, like, ew! Ew! There was a wooden crate that had air holes drilled in the sides, and then like there was a. On the wall of the van, there was a pegboard that had a bunch of different rings and hooks. Oh my god, he's like it. the toy box killer. Yeah, 
And then in the backyard, they found another wooden crate with air holes drilled in. And inside the crate, there were a bunch of, like, strands of human hair. Oh. When the police are at the boathouse, like, digging, they, they smart, though. They said, we're not going to fucking dig. They brought in two prison trustees. <laughs> Fuck. Damn. I mean, look, they got their they got their money. I'm sure for working. Yeah, they're five cents. And the cops didn't have to do it. I mean, it's fucking 1973. I mean, I I do the same thing. I mean, honestly, right now I'd be like, hey, if they need to work off something, can they help me pack and move my house? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm I'm about that life. So at first. When they're starting to dig, they find the body of a young teenage boy. He's got blonde hair. He's laying on his side, and he's Mm. got clear, like, plastic that he's tied up in. And like I said, he was buried underneath a layer of lime. Mm. Mm. So as they keep looking, they found more victims in varying stages of decomposition. Most of them were wrapped in that plastic, and... Some of them had been shot. Some of them had been strangled. But they knew they had been strangled because the ligature that he used to strangle with was still around their neck. Mm. Because, again, they had been, you know. Yeah. So, all of the victims that they found had been sodomized. And they all had, like, some form of sexual torture. I mean, not that sodomy is not. I mean, yeah. that's not what I mean. But, like, their pubic hairs had been plucked out. <gasps> No. Well, I guess I should give a, a trigger warning, like, because I'm going to list some yeah! shit. Yeah. So, trigger warning if you need to skip this. Okay, so their pubic hairs have been plucked out. Their genitals had been chewed. <gasps> By his teeth or, like, I think. Dog's teeth? Oh, I think. Okay. Objects had been obviously inserted into their rectums. Mm. Um, glass rods had been inserted into their urethra and smashed. <gasps> oh, ah. Oh. They were gagged with, like, cloth rags with tape around their mouth. Hell, that is sad when that seems like the best thing that happened to them. You know, and Mm -hmm. that, oh, God. Okay. I debated on whether or not to read this sentence, but I'm going to. Oh, great. The third victim that they found, his mouth was open so wide, like, that his upper and lower teeth were visible. And so... The investigators, like, based on how his mouth was positioned, they theorized that when he died, he was literally screaming. And that, and his mouth stayed that way. Oh, shit. Well, remember how Henley said that there was another dude, David Brooks, that he he got paid with oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah. go, like, bring lure the guys in? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So... David Brooks this time is 18. So he comes to the police station with his dad and they're asking him some questions. And he's like, no, no. I mean, I knew that he raped these two guys in 1970, but I mean, I didn't have anything to do with this. Well, so the next day, August 9th is when Henley gave like a full written statement telling everything. in his full written statement, though. He said that he talked about David Brooks involvement And, like, in the abduction and murder of numerous kids, teenagers, he also said that Henley, he himself personally killed approximately nine. Fuck. Yeah. And that he had assisted 
Dean Coral in the strangulation of others. For the $200. That's it. He didn't have anything over on him. Yeah. He said that the only three, quote, abductions and murders that David Brooks, sorry, had not assisted him in were three murders that happened in 1973 during the summer. And so what the police did was because they were like, we think that, you know, David Brooks is just scared. He's 18. He's he's known Dean Coral since he's 14. Mm. Like, that's how long he was in under, like, under his yeah. spell, basically. And so they put Henley and Brooks in the room together so that they could just, like, talk it out. Like, yeah. you know, Henley's already confessed everything. You may as well, too, kind yeah. of thing. Like, and so after they talked, Brooks was like, okay. Here's the story. Yeah. And so he started confessing, too. As part of Henley's confession, he said, like, well, that boathouse isn't actually the only place we buried bodies. Oh, my gosh. And so he took him up, took him up to Lake Sam Rayburn, and which was, like, I think it was, like, an hour and a half north of Houston. So it's, like, I just was thinking about, because I was watching this, I think it's called Blood, Lies, and truths or blood lies and something it's an id show that they had about this and on the show it was like you know dramatization of them like riding up to the that lake and i just kept thinking like shit if he had not told them that one would they have ever found those Mm -hmm. bodies and two had they found them would they have ever been able to tie it back down to them no oh gosh especially in 1973 yeah well, small miracles, I guess. And in that ID show, they had the original, most most of the original investigators. Some of them obviously had passed. And the district attorney for the time. Dang. And they were just saying, like, how Henley took him out there and he was like, pull up right. Pull down this road. Okay, stop right here. Dig right there. Like, he knew exactly wow. where they were. And that, so while they were at the lake, they found four victims that had mm. been killed that year. Then he was like, oh, okay, so there's also, like, down this dirt road, there's two more bodies. So they found found two bodies. Meanwhile, police are still at the boat shed looking because, like, they were saying that, like, I think that it was the lime. I could be wrong about this, but I think it was the lime that, like, aided, not only helped with the smell, but aided in the decomposition. And so mm. sometimes when they would like pick the bodies up in these this plastic, they would be like mush. And oh, they would just be like fall gosh. like this is so gross. But it was would be like mm. literally the skin was like melting off the bone. Ooh. So it took a long time, you know, looking through this evidence, obviously, and to make sure they're not hurting any of the bodies yeah. and all that. Well, as they were kept on digging and all in the boat shed, they found another nine bodies. Holy fuck. And those bodies were all in, like, advanced stage of decomposition. One of the bodies, though, they found one of the boys' severed genitals inside of a sealed plastic bag, like, beside the body. Mm-mm. No. No, no, no. Do they know if it was post-mortem or... I don't know. Oh, I hope it was. God. When, like I said, that David Brooks had started giving a full confession. So they had the torture board. 
And they would put the board over the plastic liners, Mm -hmm. whatever you would call it, so that it wouldn't, you know, make a bloody mess Mm -hmm. everywhere. Legit a bloody mess. Yeah, not like British bloody, like as in like actual Mm. blood. This is a quote from David Brooks. He said, once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over but the shouting and crying. Oh, fuck. So then he took police to this place called High Island Beach. And he, well, that's a lot. He and Henley both took them to High Island Beach. And they found two bodies there. In that ID show, they... It interviewed this, like, photographer, reporter dude who got this pretty incredible shot of the two men sitting there because it's summer in Houston. Like, they had taken their shirts off. Like, they, yeah. you know, they were just like, if you didn't know any better, it was just like two buddies sitting on the beach, hot, you know, hanging out. But yeah. no, these are murderers, serial wow. killers who are sitting there watching police unearth two bodies you know, and it was just a very, it's a very, like, poetic shot. And he was, yeah. like, he was in the interview who said, I really never thought you would, like, we would ever get a picture of the two of them together. Yeah. Because why would they be when they're both in custody? Mm-hmm. But they both took them out there to find the bodies, and so they were together. Because you know that those two had a bond that you we mm-hmm. can't understand. Yeah. So after they found the two bodies at High Island Beach... That brought the total to 27 known victims. Holy fuck. This was the worst killing spree in America at the time. Wow. This was also before, like, the Gacy murders and all of that. Yeah. So this was, like... Unheard of. This this was huge. And nobody fucking knows it. No. I had no idea. When you said Dean, I was like, Winchester? Like... Had I've yeah. never heard of like a dean who's a serial killer, and so I was like, she don't want me to know the name, but I don't know a dean. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Like the John Wayne Gacy stuff happened in seventy eight, and he killed thirty three boys. So like, yeah, he did top him, but I mean, you know what I mean. I know that sounds terrible, mm-hmm. but he did numbers wise have more than him, but. Had it's so crazy because Dean Coral convinced two kids to help him. Yeah, convinced two kids to go get him. Like he just was like hanging out at his house, waiting on them to bring him victims. Right. Easy. One thing too that makes this case pretty fucked up. I mean, aside from all of the details. Yeah. Well, and some stuff says that they think that he had a minimum of twenty eight victims. So. And, again, let me just, I want to say this, too. They were all between the ages of 13 and 20. Mm. Most of them were just, like, that mid-teens, you know. Golly. I think that, like, 13, 15-year-old was his favorite, you know. The one that was, mouth was open? No, no, no. I'm saying, like, that age range. I think, like, he was, like, a, you know. Because, like, when he first started hanging out with David Brooks, he was 14. Mm. You know, I just think that that. So what was happening, though, is that because most of these kids were missing from the Heights, the area in Houston. And so, like, 
brothers would go missing. And Golly. yeah, and so it's just like why why do people do this? And so a lot of these kids, their parents were like, "No, like my kid's missing." And they were like, "Well, he's a 13, 14, 18-year-old boy, like he probably just wanted to stay out for a couple of nights, yeah. yada, yada yada, like total 1970s you know, deniability boy it was not abducted mm-hmm. because they didn't understand there, there was John Wayne Gacy didn't exist yet. Yes. And so they didn't understand that these boys were being abducted. Mm. Godly. They were saying too, like when they were trying to identify the bodies, like a lot of them still had the clothes on that they went missing in. And so they were able to identify through that. And that even though at the time the Heights was a little bit of a poorer area, you know, it was like low middle class. And so. Yeah. A lot of them had, like, good dental care and all that. So they had x-rays and all of that. And so they were able to do the dental comparisons and stuff. But Yeah. So here are a few of just a few of the stories of the murders. The first known murder was of Jeffrey Conan. He was 18. He was a college freshman at the University of Texas. He had been hitchhiking with, like, one of his classmates and he was dropped off on Westheimer, like Westheimer and South Boss Road. And I know you know all these Oh, names. my God. Sorry, my eyes just got big. It's crazy when you know the names. Yes. Like, you know what they're talking about. So, they think that Dean Coral had given, was, like, picked him up because he was hitchhiking and said that he would take him home to his parents. And oh my God. Because at the time, Dean Coral lived really close to that intersection on Westheimer. Mm-hmm. And so, Jeffrey, that was one of the bodies that they found at High Island. He died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation, and he had the cloth in his mouth. Not long after that, David Brooks had interrupted Dean Coral while he was sexually assaulting two teenage boys that he had strapped to his, like, four-poster bed. Mm-hmm. And when David Brooks found it, because I think that that was probably... Like, I, I mean, I don't think that David Brooks had anything to do with the first one. I think this yeah. was, like, he... He when, saw behind the curtain. Yeah. So, when he walks in and sees it, Dean Quirrell promises him a car if he keeps silent. Oh, God. Which he, of course, accepted. And later, Dean bought him a green Corvette. Yep. Well, wow. Then, that later... Dean Coral told him, like, okay, yeah, I killed those, but hey, if you keep bring, if you bring me people, I'll give you $200 a head, like I told you before. So then Brooks lords two 14 year old Spring Branch kids, like oh, that's where they're from, God. James Glass and Danny Yates. They had been going to this like religious rally that was held in the Heights. Aww. And Brooks, like, lured them to his house where he raped, strangled, all that shit. Those were two of the bodies found at the boathouse. So, six weeks after that, they found two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop. And their dad had taken them to their friend's house because they wanted to discuss starting a bowling league. Oh, no. I know. These, you know, this, this, some, I mean, not, I don't want to say some versus others, but, like, these two kids were one of the, like, I think the first ones that were reported as missing. Because, like, 
their mom was like, these were good kids. Like, they were doing well in school. They, you know, mm-hmm. they had things they were living for. They weren't, like, they had future plans. Yeah. These were not kids that were just about to run away. Right. Because, I mean, they wanted to to do things in the community. This, You know what I mean? Just like last week with Amanda Berry. Like, she wouldn't have just left with her birthday party coming up and $100 in her drawer and all that. Same yeah. thing with these kids. They had... They had goals and, and short-term goals, you know. So those two boys were also in the boat shed. Between March and May of 71, he abducted three more victims, all who lived in the Houston Heights area. Of those two, they're, they're pretty sure that Brooks, like, helped with the, the abduction. And that was 15-year-old Randall Harvey, who was last seen by his fa- his family on March 9th riding his bike. Oh. Up to his part-time job at a gas station. He was killed by a gunshot wound. Fuck. And then two other victims, 13-year-old David Hillegast and 16-year-old Gregory Malley Winkle. They were abducted together on May 29, 71. Same thing with them. Both of their parents were, like, on it, looking for them. You know, like, again, these kids are not just going to, yeah, you know, run away. And again, looking back, I hate to like make everything that the John Wayne Gacy thing was like the the turning point because I feel like this should have been, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. But I feel like that really was kind of the turning point where we, where we realized we because you know we were born and all yeah we weren't, but that boys get abducted too, mm-hmm. and that there are predators who seek young boys as much as young girls. Yeah, well, here they're probably like one time thing. It's a fluke. Not yeah. gonna happen again, and then it happens in a bigger way, and they're like, "Hold up, wait a minute, fuck, yeah. no one's safe." Yeah. Then August seventeenth of seventy one, Ruby Watson Haney was walking home from a movie theater when Brooks convinced him to get into a car. There were two more victims that they abducted before Wayne Henley came in the picture. That their identities still are unknown. Mm. So then, in winter of 71, that's when Elmer Wayne Henley gets brought in by Brooks. Mm-hmm. And something about Henley, Dean Coral liked. And so instead of assaulting him and killing him, he was like, no, let's make him part of it. Wow. 20 bucks if you want to. I mean, $200. 20 bucks? Sorry. That was like, fuck. Inflation hadn't hit in yet. <laughs> 200 if you want in, you know. And Henley says that he ignored it for a couple of months, but then he decided, like, okay, look, my family is so fucking broke. Like, Gosh. we're it's, it's you know, quoted as dire financial circumstances. Like, I got to do it. Yeah. And so the first one he participated in was February 1972. There's some discrepancies in both of their statements about when each, like, when that occurred before or then. But anyway... They're not 100% sure who that first victim was with that Henley participated in, but they think it may have been Willard Branch. He was 17. Just like the timeline adds up, but they're not sure if it was him, just because his body was so... All the things. I wonder why Coral... Carl, Coral... Mm-hmm. He wanted them to kill them, too. Well, it, it because what they're going to do now, they're going to go to the cops. They're part of it. And Well, even just one. Well, shit, he may have gotten off on it. Yeah. So, a month later, on March 24th of 72, 
the three of the dumbass amigos, <laughs> um, they came upon an 18-year-old that they, they knew, Frank Aguirre, and he was hanging out at a restaurant on Yale Street um, where he worked. And they invited him over to drink beer, smoke pot, and he's like, cool. So he went over there, and, of course, we know the drill. They yes. murdered him. He was one of the bodies that they found at High Island Beach. Mm. And then April 20th, they both helped with the abduction of 17-year-old Mark Scott. Same thing again for him. He was the other body that was buried at High Island Beach. Mm. Mm-mm. And, you know, the thing, too, is that Dean Quirrell moved all the time. Like, he would he would only live a place, like, sometimes a couple of weeks. Whoa. And so what couldn't be like, oh, yeah, I saw him go into blah, blah, blah with yeah. whoever, you know. And then June 26th, they abducted Billy Botch and Johnny DeLome. Around that time, too, they lured 19-year-old Billy Rittinger to the house and then... At the end of, oh, I'm sorry, summer of 72, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman. I don't think we have all the names, but I'm just going to give you a couple more of the names. Wally J. Simino, Richard Embray, Joseph Lyles. So Henley and Brooks were both charged and tried separately. And for Henley's trial, the jury only deliberated for 92 minutes mm. and found him guilty of all six murders that he was tried on. Mm-hmm. So he was convicted for like not a 99 year sentence for each one to be served consecutively. So it was like 594 years. Good. But he, okay, he actually appealed though, saying that his jury trial, like, sorry, during his trial, the jury wasn't sequestered and that they thought that the news media had, you know, played an impact. And so they actually overturned the conviction. You're playing with my emotions. I know. So then he was retried. So in the second trial, they deliberated for two hours before reaching a verdict. And he got the exact, the, I'm sorry, the only difference is he got the same sentence, just they were concurrent instead of consecutive. Oh, wow. Then Brooks went to trial and the jury for him deliberated for 90 minutes before they found him guilty. And he was sentenced to life in prison. He, of course, appealed, but now they're both serving life sentences. You've really covered some fuckwads. I know. I know. And there's so much more. Like, there's a lot that they've been doing with, like, the forensics and stuff to try to figure out the bodies that they can't identify. Yeah. There's there, there's just, there's a lot to this one. But it's heavy and all around just a really bad situation. But it's crazy that he really is one of the most prolific serial killers. Yeah. And one of the, I hate to say it like this, but one of the OGs, you know. Mm-hmm. And had so many kids that he killed. And, it, like, most people just don't even, have never even heard of him. Mm-mm. I hadn't. So that's it. That's Dean Coral and his wow. chamber of death, the Candyman. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, I mean, I still want sweets, but not as much. Not from him. Okay. So what we learn? Nobody is supposed to twist and contort in those ways. So right? if they do, they fucking possessed. Believe them. It was such a shitty number one, but I liked it. <laughs> I mean, obvious said it. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. mean, it's true. Like I know. Well, they're and not I, break dancing, they're possessed. Mm-hmm. Well, and like because I think that for her, 
part of the things that the demon was doing was like, no, it's fine. Like, you know, mm-hmm. trying to convince them to like back off because he wanted to stay in his host. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, no, 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 let, you know, just, you're not supposed to fucking move that way. Yeah. Two, I think, is that parents know their kids. Yeah. And when they say, no, he's not the type of kid to just run away, well, he's not the type of kid to just run. I mean, I know that you don't, kid parents never truly know their kids because God knows the yeah. shit that I did that my mom had no idea about. But, you know, like if the parents say they're not the type to run away, then they're not the type to run away. Yeah, It's like, because a parent knows their soul, you know, mm-hmm. ultimately, you know who they are deep down. Yeah. Because again, not that it's impossible to know had they believed those first sets of parents, like, would it have ended? Would they would they have caught them? Would they have yeah. all the things? But damn, 28 fucking murders, 27, 28 murders later, would have been worth a shot, you know? Yeah. Something else I learned is that I, I, I knew it, but people will do shit for money. Mm-hmm. A lot of fucking shit. And uh, for not much money, too. Right. Well, I mean, you might do it for a Corvette, but. I, you know, I'd be like, what year is it? <laughs> um, is it a black 1967? Because then I'm in. Dang. It may have been because uh, this was in 73. So that would have been an older, you know, mm-hmm. or 71 anyway. Well, it was green. No, I know, but I could paint it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. You know, question for you. Why did he take them over to that guy's house if he knew what was going on and he knew, like, he didn't want to kill them? Well, because I think he, okay, I think that, I don't know. I don't know. Dean Coral was pissed that he brought that girl, though. Yeah. Because it fucked up his fantasy. Mm -hmm. So he was going to make... Like, it, he even has, so on that, uh, no, not on the idea. Something else I watched, it was, like, a 45 years later, and it had, like, all the original news stuff. And it had him, like, sitting in the police car, like, handcuffed and all. And he was mm-hmm. saying, like, that Dean Coral was going to rape Curly, and he was going to rape mm-hmm. Rhonda. And so, I don't know. I don't know what was, like, the triggering where he was like, okay, I'm done. Maybe yeah. he actually... Maybe Henley actually liked Rhonda. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, he could have been bisexual or, you know. Yeah. And actually, I don't I don't know. I yeah, don't know. I was just wondering because that's just so weird. Hey, y'all are my friends and I like you. We're going to go over and get high at this place that I kill for. Yeah. Well, you and, and, you know, maybe he didn't. He just wanted, maybe he just wanted to go there and get high with them and them not die, you know. I don't fucking know. But you can't trust a killer? No, I know. Obviously, you can't trust your accomplice either. That was that was a rough story. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad I know that now, though, because I feel like a fraud no. for not knowing. No, no, no. Don't. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> do you feel validated now? I, I do. Okay. I do. Dang. We want to know what y'all think and what would you do for $200? Oh, my God. I mean, because clearly $200 is the going rate for a murder mm-hmm. and just, oh, golly. Damn. Also, 
Would you do you, okay? Yes. What would you do for two hundred dollars? What would you do for a Klondike bar? And would you stick by someone who was possessed with a demon and could kill you at any time? I would. There's a lot of things I could list for two hundred dollars. I would do okay, but I would probably do the same things for a Klondike bar. <laughs> and no, I would not stick by somebody that possessed. <laughs> I a mean, demon. honestly, though, you would be the one possessed by a demon uh-huh. and being like, "Get the fuck out of here with all that mushy gushy love stuff." Uh huh. Like, Meanwhile, ew. though. Meanwhile, you are a fucking demon. See- Meanwhile, you are a changeling. On that note, remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.